We're right now in a series um, on the Gospel of Matthew. We've started this at the beginning of this year. And so we're at the tail end. Um, Today's chapter is Matthew 24. Matthew 24, so you can open your Bibles, look uh, with me to Matthew 24. And if you've studied Matthew 24 before, um, and if you are like me, you'd immediately think of Matthew 24 as what one of those passages we call the end time passages. And there are a few of them in, in, in the Bible. Uh, some of them, would, if, and if you've read through the Bible, you've seen the prophecies in the book of Daniel. You'd also, most of you have thought of the book of Revelations as one of those um, books that talk about what happens at the end times, the end of history, the end of the world. Um, and then there's Matthew 24. And it's true, a lot of things in here are prophetic and, and will state the things that will take place before and when Jesus returns. But today, what I would like us to do is to come back to the theme of Matthew. Come back to the theme of Matthew and then ask ourselves, what does Matthew 24 tell us in line with that theme? The theme of Matthew 24 begins with the first words of Jesus Christ. It says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's going to then explain through parables, through the miracles, through the sayings, through the, through the conversations he has with different people, what this kingdom of heaven looks like. And so I'm going to look at that theme, the kingdom of heaven, as we look at Matthew 24. But we're going to do a bit of history, all right? We're going to look before Matthew 24 comes Matthew 23 and 22 and 21. And so we're going to just backtrack a bit to Matthew 21, the triumphal entry. And this is a familiar story to a lot of us. This is the story of Jesus coming on a donkey into Jerusalem. Say you're one of the disciples, all right? You helped Jesus with getting the donkey, and, and now he's riding on it, and you're going into Jerusalem. And the image that a lot of us have in our mind is he's crowded by people, crowded by people who will say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they, they lay out their, their robes and the, and the palm trees. and uh, the, Yeah, the palm, not the trees, the leaves. Um, and, and, and just lay it out and, and prepare, this, prepare the way for the king to come into Jerusalem. And it's a wonderful sight. And then, and then this guy named Matthew remembers that at some point in Israel's history, one prophet said something that seems to now become reality right before his eyes. And that is the prophet Zechariah who said, this took place, so Matthew saying, Matthew said, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And you're like, wow, this is becoming reality. The prophecy that the king is coming is right before my eyes. But at the end of that passage, when the crowds ask, who is here? The answer that was given to them was this, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, not King Jesus the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You're the disciples, you're with Jesus, you've been with him, you, you walk with him into the temple, he has this whip that he's prepared and, and he's overthrowing tables of people who have been making money uh, in the temple and he's saying, you're turning my father's house into a den of thieves. 
And you're seeing all of that, and then you look from, from afar, the chief priests and the scribes. And right near you, you hear little kids. This is what Matthew is saying. The little kids were singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Okay, sorry, I don't know what tune they were singing in, all right? Um, but they were singing this, Hosanna to the son of David. But then you look from afar, the chief priests and the scribes, and you look at their face and you go, and Matthew says they were indignant. They were indignant. From Matthew 21 to 22 to 23, there are a lot of parables and conversations that take place. And, and my conclusion to all of that would be this. He came to a kingdom. He came for a kingdom where its people were unprepared. Because this is what happened. The chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, they, they would come up to him and ask him, where did you get your authority from? Jesus then asked them back, John's authority from where? Leaves them dumbfounded and says, because you cannot tell me where John's authority is from, I won't tell you where my authority is from. He gives us parables of the sons, the two sons, the parable of the wedding feast, and it essentially says, if you do not recognize the king in your midst, you have no place in the kingdom. And at the end of Matthew 23, well, actually, more, more like the second half of Matthew 23, Jesus delivers a salvo, all right, of criticisms against the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, hypocrites, because you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that, you do all of these things, and you mess things up for my people, and you are my leaders, no. And at the end of Matthew 23, you get the feeling that Jesus was frustrated and he was spent, like emotionally just spent. He would say this, look, I've sent you prophets. I've sent you wise men. I've sent you scribes. And what did you do? You kill them. You persecute them. You shed their righteous blood from the blood of Abel. So he goes all the way back. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Incidentally, in some of your manuscripts, it says Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the same Zechariah who said, your king is coming to you on a donkey. That same prophet killed by you guys. I've sent you prophets, wise men, scribes. What do you do to them? You kill them. You persecute them. And then at the end of Matthew 23, out of just this cry of of, of frustration, of, of just being so upset with, with what he's seeing, he goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Let me just backtrack there. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How, I, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her, her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Spent. He looks at his kingdom that he wants to inaugurate. The king had come to inaugurate, to launch his kingdom. 
And what did he find? A people unprepared to receive the king. A people unprepared to receive the king. Now, some of you have had history or experiences in launching things, right? You launch a business or you, you launch an organization. And, and so when you launch something, you usually have a good feeling about it, right? This is a small thing. This is my baby. This is my little brainchild. Um, but I launched it because I'm excited about it and I know something's going to happen to it, right? I mean, you asked Pastor Chu and Pastor Lee Chu when they started SIBKL with the group of people that they had 25 years ago. All right? and, and they launched it because they knew this was what God's direction was for them. And they had people around them, people like Elder Bernard, who led worship uh, right here. You know, 25 years of, of journeying together with what God is doing in SIBKL. So when you launch it, you, you have a good feeling. You have an ex- a sense of excitement about what God's going to do with, with what He has directed us to do. And, and, uh, and so if, if you haven't got the memo, if you want to find out what's going on and what's, what's been the history like, um, please remember next week, come for our 25th anniversary. All right, you hear the stories, get the book. The book will tell you a lot about the stories and about how Jesus uh, was so evident in the life of, of this church. But if you've started businesses and you've launched something, you, you get this good feeling about it. This is your baby, your brainchild. But Jesus came to launch his kingdom, and this is what he's got to deal with, a people unprepared to receive the king. We know in Acts, of course, after Jesus' resurrection and and before his ascension to heaven, he commissioned his disciples, and the kingdom began to expand. But that's in Acts. We're looking at Matthew 23. In Matthew 24, it starts off with Jesus leaving Jerusalem and going up to the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you get a very nice view of the temple. It's a very awesome view. This is the temple that was built in the days of Haggai and Zerubbabel, but was improved by Herod, and so there was a lot of gold on the temple, and there was like really pure marble, right? really white marble on the temple. And you look at it from afar, and when the sun is shining on it, it's blinding, it's, it's magnificent. It looks like there's snow on the temple. And so the disciples point this out to Jesus. Wow, beautiful temple, right? King, beautiful temple, right? And Jesus says, not one stone of this temple will be on another. At some point, you will know that this temple will be destroyed. And so the disciples are, are, are partly puzzled with all these conversations that have been going on. With Jesus' prophecy of what's happening in the temple, they come up to Jesus and then they ask him this very important question, which is the basis for which we look at Matthew 24. And they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, if you were like me when I first read this passage, immediately I think, okay, what is the sign of Jesus' second coming and that would be the end of the age? But if you think about this, the disciples don't understand second coming. For the disciples, the king was already here. We walked with him, like Zechariah said, into Jerusalem. So for me, as a disciple, I would have been thinking, okay, Jesus, I know some of us have already, you know, worshipped you, praised you as king, Hosanna to the son of David, which is a kingly title. 
So all you need to do is go into a room, maybe just change your clothes, and then you know, come out with full pomp and regalia, and, and then and you come out this room shining bright, and it's like, wow, the king is here. And then when I, when I look at you from behind you, legions of angels you know, coming, and, and this is the time to restore the glory to Israel. What would be the sign of your coming? And the reason why I think that's the case is because the word coming is the word parousia. All right, everybody say parousia. So now you know a bit of Greek, right? Parousia means, and and parousia is the term we often use to refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But parousia generally refers to coming or presence. So perhaps one of the better ways to, to understand what the disciples were saying when they're asking this question is, Jesus, uh, when will you manifest your glorified presence to Israel? Your kingly presence? Because the donkey is not very kingly. But when will you manifest, manifest your kingly presence to Israel? You almost also remember that because Jesus had already been sharing parables about the end of the age, they understood that the parousia of Jesus, the kingly presence of Jesus, would also usher in the end of the age. And there will be judgment, and there will be a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. So they're asking essentially this question, when is it going to happen, and how will we know? When is your glorified presence going to become manifest, and by that time, that will be the end of the age, there will be the separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. Maybe at that point, I will be able to sit on your right hand. When will that happen? Now, Jesus' answer, now, Jesus is the all-knowing God, and he answers us throughout Matthew 24, explaining two things. They're prophetic, but from our vantage point, we're able to see two incidences that Jesus deals with. First of all, he deals with something that a lot of them will experience in their lifetime. The fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem took place around AD 69 to 70. And the other incident or the other event is his second coming. His second coming. Now, so you, see the prophe- you will see the prophecies sometimes run parallel with each other and then sometimes run distinct from each other. But there are certain things in Matthew 24 that are specific to the fall of Jerusalem which don't, don't necessarily apply to us. For example, the temple is destroyed. Not one stone would be on another. The temple is destroyed. There was utter desecration of the temple, and that took place uh, during the fall of Jerusalem. And then Jesus would say, I mean, Jesus would say, if you are in Jerusalem at that time, flee to the mountains, because the siege and the destruction by the Romans of Jerusalem was real. It happened, and it was very, very, very severe. And so there are certain things that Jesus said in Matthew 24 that applied specifically to the Jews at that time because this was what was going to happen. He would say things like, wish that you were not pregnant or that you were nursing children because you would have to flee and hope to, hope to God that you wouldn't have to run on the Sabbath or that it would not be winter when it happens. Those were real warnings for them. And when they realized it, this is, when we look at it and look at history and look at what the Romans did at the fall of Jerusalem, you realize this is real. But the thing is this, the parousia of Jesus, his coming as king was not yet to happen. He had not returned to receive his kingdom. In fact, by the fall of Jerusalem, 
it would not look like there was any kingdom to receive, any kingdom to return to. It is because the rest of Matthew 24 tells us he's coming as king in a different time, in a different season. And we're looking at it now and we're saying, God, Jesus, what are the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? But here's the question I want to ask you. The coming king is coming for his kingdom. But when he comes, what kind of kingdom will he find? What kind of kingdom will he find? If the first appearance of Jesus Christ was a king coming to inaugurate his kingdom, when he comes a second time, he's going to come for his kingdom. He's going to come and receive his kingdom. It has started, it is growing, and when he comes, what he wants to see is a people prepared to receive the kingdom. That people, you and I, are people who would be willing to say, Jesus is king, and I'm ready to receive the king when he comes. How many of you would love to see Jesus come back in your lifetime? Good, awesome. I've asked this question before. Uh, the first service and the second service, you guys are good. A lot of you, put your hands up. But I don't know if you've asked other people this question. You're like, would you like to see Jesus come in your lifetime? And the first thing that comes to their mind is tribulation, persecution, death, uh, famine, war, earthquake, um, confusion, deception. Um, maybe not lah. But it's great, a lot of us want to do that. And, and, and when I was a kid, I, I, I asked my mom, and my mom's here, and, and I, I hope she remembers this story. Uh, I said, you know, the Bible tells us when Jesus comes back, um, the whole world will know, right? So here's the thing, we, we've learned, at least that's what science teaches us, that the world is round. So if Jesus comes in location A, and I'm in location B, how would I know that Jesus has arrived? And then my mom said, and this is, this is the season when you can watch Olympics, perhaps one of those um, times when, you have, when general public have the opportunity to watch the Olympics on live telecast. Live telecast, ah! Right? When Jesus comes, da -da 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 -da, angels and all that, trumpet sound and all that, CNN would have picked it up. So if you happen to, show, if you happen to arrive you know, in, in Washington, D.C., all of us here in Malaysia would know, just turn on the TV, send WhatsApp messages to everybody, hey, Jesus is here, watch CNN. Right? Um, but here's the thing, what about people who don't have TV? Or who don't subscribe to CNN? What also, it, we're, we're privileged people to be able to watch TV, to get the news on a dot. But not everyone is like that. A lot of people have TVs as a luxury for them. They may not even have the chance to watch TV every single day of their lives, and you have to go to this one particular place where this, this one flickering cathode ray tube TV is, is, is running. What I think will take place when Jesus comes back is he will not need live telecasts. It will be so awesome. I don't know how he's going to, maybe he's, maybe he's going to put the world back flat, you know, and, and then all these other guys were like, see, I told you. Um, no, I, I don't know. But whatever it is, when he comes, everybody's going to know. And you don't need TV, you don't need radio, you don't need WhatsApp, you don't need internet to tell you that Jesus is back. And I would love to see that happen. I would like, so this is how you did it. 
That would be so awesome, man. I'm like, whoo, this is, this is my Jesus, right? This is my God. And that's one of the reasons why I want to I be alive when Jesus comes back. I'm like, I want to see this happen in my lifetime. Amen. No, but here, here's the thing. Throughout Matthew, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's been talking about what, uh, what it looks like, what are its values, what his vision is for the kingdom of heaven. But in Matthew 24, I just want to emphasize five things about the kingdom of heaven in light of the coming of the parousia of the king. In light of the coming of Jesus Christ as king to receive his kingdom, what would that kingdom of heaven look like? What would its people look like? Because the disciples ask, what are the signs? And so Jesus tells them the signs, but then he says, this is the kind of church I want you to be in that season. This is the kind of church, this is the kind of people I want you to be in that season before my coming. Five things. And this is from Matthew 24, the first part of Matthew 24, and as we look through these verses, these are the things I believe Jesus wants us to be. The kind of people who are prepared to receive the king. It is firstly a kingdom that is transformed by the truth. Matthew 24 verse 5, he says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. It was very relevant in the life of Jerusalem before the fall of Jerusalem, that many people would come and say, I'm the anointed one. I'm the savior of Israel. I have come to rescue Israel. And many people would follow. But all of them would have either died or would have fallen flat because the Jerusalem eventually fell. But it is even more apparent today. Many people, maybe not themselves, saying, I am your savior, but people who have been venerated, people who have been respected and adored as, as God, as, as Messiah, as, as the Savior, as people who are so wise and, and so brilliant and who are, who are able to say powerful things into people's lives. They have a following of devotees. They have claim, people who have claimed their Messiahship. Books are written, movies made. Seminars, talks given. And, and you know how you, you find out about this? When people flock to them because they want to know how to live their best life, how to live their transformed life, how to reach the pinnacle of self-awareness and self-fulfillment. My question to you is this. Who transforms you? Who transforms you? It's very easy to say that this kingdom is a kingdom that is not led astray, not deceived. But the reason why we would not be led astray or not deceived is only when we are transformed and we know the truth so clearly, so powerfully in our lives, that when people come and say something else other than the truth, you know it. The story is told, and many of you may have heard this, that, that a bank teller knows a, a, a false uh, a currency because he always touches the real currency. And he knows something is amiss with this particular one, this particular bank note that I hold. Similarly, likewise, for each one of us, we, when we're transformed by the truth, when we know the truth that comes deep from the word of God, deep from Jesus Christ himself, when the deception comes, when the lies come, 
we would not be led astray. Just a couple of days, I, I, was, I was with a friend, and, uh, and, and she was going through issues, and, and, uh, and so I said, look, um, and she's not a believer, I said, look, God um, sees the things you've done and sees the things that you, uh, that you want to do um, righteously, and I know you're going through these issues. And then, and then she interrupts me and says, um, yes, yes, I, I, I believe that. That is why I pray to, uh, to this man. And this man, uh, so I looked it up. I looked up on Wikipedia, who is this guy? Um, he's, he's venerated by his, by his people. He's passed away. Right? He's venerated by his people. It uh, doesn't matter what religion you are. Um, he, he is considered as an avatar. And if, and if you've seen Avatar, no, I'm not referring to the movie. Um, avatar is a, is a Hindu term that essentially means God in human form. All right? and, and so he, he's an avatar of God, um, and so the things he says and, and whatever he does is, is worthy of recognition, is worthy of worship. That's who he is. And, and I'm thinking, oh, dear me. I'm looking at this passage and saying people are claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the people who will help you, the people who will restore you and rescue you. And here's this guy who has led many astray, saying, I'm the Christ. And and that may be the case for a, a lot of us. We will hear of these things. And it may not be so obvious to us. You know, for some of this, is yeah, yeah, obviously it's not Jesus Christ, therefore we won't worship him. But if you spend a lot of time being transformed by the movies you watch, by the books you read, by the seminars and talks that you've attended, because they give you tips on how to live your life, by the blog articles and, and, and the things that you've read online, then my question to you is, who really transforms you? Because that's what we are bombarded with. We're bombarded with voices clamoring to have a say in our lives. We are bombarded by, by, by all the things around us, just through our handphones, bombarded. But is the word transforming you? Is the truth of God in the word renewing your mind and transforming you The big question to a lot of us is, what is my purpose here on earth? And there are many answers out there. The Word of God tells us that when you renew your mind, you would be able to understand the will of God, His good, pleasing, and perfect will for you. But is the Word transforming you? Is it becoming the life-giving, faith-building, eye-opening source of transformation for you, the source of truth. Here's the thing. When Jesus comes to receive his kingdom, he's looking for a people who are transformed by the truth, people who live out the truth, people who know the word of God and live it out and, and exemplify kingdom culture, exemplify the values of the kingdom because it's in here, in the word, and being lived out, they know the truth, their lives are transformed by the truth. That's the kind of people Jesus is coming back for. Second one, we want people who are anchored in Jesus. It says that you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not alarmed. 
for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. See that you are not alarmed. History tells us that before the fall of Jerusalem, there were many wars and rumors of wars. So it was real in their time. But I'll tell you, you look at the world today, and it's even more apparent. Globally, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecutions, there is unrest all over the place. Unrest. The question is, are you alarmed? Are you fearful? Are you scared? You see, the issue is not how many wars you can count or how intense the wars get, as if, you know, God needed a quota of wars before he would come back. No. The question he's asking us, though, is this. When these things happen, who is your anchor? When these things happen, who is your anchor? You see, fear, anxiety, and worry cripple our society. In fact, it directs our lives more than we think. Just ask yourselves the questions. Don't, I mean, don't even talk about wars. Let's look at our life decisions. How many of us make decisions on what is the safest, most practical, most sanitized option? The most comfortable option, the most convenient option. Do we have enough money to get married, to have kids? Do we have enough money to obey God or not? Have I, count, have I counted that I've got enough before I decide to commit my life to Jesus Christ? How risky are these decisions? How comfortable will these decisions be? Friends, God has called us to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. That was His call, Matthew 6. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. But if our life's decisions are based on practicality, if our life decisions are based on the least risk, the most benefit, the most convenience, I guarantee you when there is a war, you will definitely be alarmed because your anchor is not in Jesus Christ. Your anchor is in what you hold, what you can see, what, you can put your, what, you, what you've put your trust in, which can, in war, disappear. Gone. You will definitely be alarmed. And I don't have to talk about World War III, you know, and not some nuclear uh, catastrophe going on. Just talk about, for example, trade war. What would a trade war do to your business? Some of you are like, yay, trade war is happening good for me. But some of you, your businesses would be affected. Political upheaval, change in government. What about your private data leaking online? Would you be alarmed? Would that strike fear inside of you? Because if these things, and these things do happen, when these things happen, what would be the kind of people that Jesus is coming back for? He wants people who are anchored in Jesus Christ. We anchor ourselves in the King of Kings. We anchor ourselves in the calling that Jesus has for us. We don't make decisions out of fear. We don't make decisions out of what is the most comfortable, beneficial option if, unless we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ, his kingdom and his righteousness, first, foremost, of utmost priority. We decide out of trust in Jesus Christ. 
You see, the church of Jesus Christ has countless people, countless people who have lived without fear because their anchor is in Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about Christians who live in countries where persecution is great, no. I'm talking about Malaysia. I'm talking about SIBKL. I'm talking about people who have given up their, 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 their cushy jobs, their opportunities, their, their um, benefits in order to commit themselves to seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. You've seen some of these stories on TV, on the screen, right? You've seen some of these stories. You've seen people who have anchored themselves in Jesus when there was cancer. You don't need a huge war to get yourself alarmed. You need something inside of you. And the question then will be, would you be alarmed? And yet they've anchored themselves in Jesus Christ and know that Jesus can do something wonderful, something powerful out of their lives. And that was the testimony we heard from Emily. So if you haven't gotten the memo, 25th anniversary, next weekend. If you, like I said, if you come here and you're like, oh, I forgot, all right, just remember this, you're not late, you can go there earlier, um, go there very early if you want to, um, and just enjoy yourself as we celebrate God together. But you will be hearing a lot of stories of people who have anchored themselves in Jesus Christ and what God has done for them. Because you know God honors that. I mean, that's the greatest honor is when Jesus comes back and he says, these are my people. But right now, in this day, God honors the fact that we anchor ourselves in Jesus Christ. And you're going to hear stories of that next week, of people right in our church who have done this and who can testify to the goodness of Jesus in their lives. What kind of people is Jesus looking for when he comes back? He's looking for people who are anchored in Jesus. Transformed by the truth, anchored in Jesus. Next one. People who value Jesus above all. Because he says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Sign of his coming. This is going to take place. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is going to happen. Persecution, trials and tribulation will come our way. And there's just basically one explanation for this. If the coming king is coming for his kingdom, the enemy, and there's a spiritual war going on which manifests itself in the natural, the enemy is hell-bent, literally, on destroying this kingdom. He is so determined to tear us apart, to force us to denounce Jesus, to tempt us, to give us something that would be more valuable than Jesus Christ more valuable than pursuing the kingdom. Why suffer? Because this is better. The enemy doesn't play by any rules. He will do whatever it takes. And it's a war that is going on and is going on intensely in our day and age. But ask anyone who has withstood persecution, has stood the test of these trials, and they will say two main themes will arise. First of all, it's God's grace and strength over their lives as they pursue, sorry, as they undergo persecution. That's how they survive. Because it's not their own strength, but because of God's grace and strength over their lives, they go through persecution. But the second one is this. They value Jesus above all else. 
They value Jesus over everything because they see the beauty, they see the glory, they see the love of Jesus, and they say, I'd rather have this than trade it for persecution. I'd rather have this and be persecuted and trade it for something else the world can offer me. My question to you is this, who do you value most? Who do you value most? What did Stephen see before he was stoned? I think that that's such a beautiful sight because he says, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When you look at that vision, you're saying, this is so beautiful. I'm not going to trade that for anything the world can offer me. When I see something that beautiful, I'm not going to go back to the Pharisees who are holding their stones and gnashing their teeth at me and go, okay, okay, fine, fine. Um, yeah, whatever I said just now, I'm sorry. That was not true. That's not what I should have said. I'm sorry, I renounce, I renounce whatever I've just said. No, when you look at that vision, you see the value of Jesus above all else. And then you say, receive me. Do not hold this against them. Paul, when he wrote to the church in Philippi, says this, all his qualifications, all his credentials, all the recognition he could have got in this world is nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus was of greatest value to him. In fact, you could take all of what he held dear to him and you could take it all away from him and he'd freely give it up because Jesus is worth so much more. Philippians 3 Verse 7 says, But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the powers of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These are people who have gone before us who value Jesus above all despite the fact that they were persecuted, despite the fact that they were put to death, imprisoned, whatever the world throws at them, they value Jesus above everything. Friends, this is going to be happening to our lives in whatever degree or whatever level because we profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. We profess to be disciples of Jesus Christ. My question to you is, when you profess your discipleship, your following of Jesus Christ, who do you value most? Who do you value most? Fourthly, it is a kingdom that stands for righteousness. Because Jesus says, lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. What is lawlessness? Lawlessness here is really the condition when the righteous laws of God are not upheld. 
when the righteous laws of God are not upheld. Instead, the, the King James Version uses this phrase, iniquity shall abound. It means it's going to get more and more. It's going to become so natural, so real, so, so acceptable. Iniquity shall abound. The righteous laws of God will not be upheld, will not be kept. There will be many people who would live up to lawlessness. But take note of this. Iniquity doesn't look very off-putting. Evil doesn't look very evil. If somebody with two horns comes to me and says, hey, take this money, obviously you say no, right? But if your colleague or your boss or the person you want to get contracts with asks, hey, put some money inside, it doesn't look so off-putting, you know? Because essentially, the devil doesn't want to come off as evil and then tempt you away from the righteous laws of God. What he will do, though, is say, are you really sure you cannot do this? That was the first one when he spoke to Eve. Are you really sure that this was what God said you cannot do? Or it could be, you're hungry, right? You're hungry anyway, just do it lah. Oh, you've got objectives, you've got ambitions. Here, let me help you. You know, one of the things I realized when, when, when I was reading and kind of just studying the temptations of Jesus Christ is that when the enemy comes and we look at the passage and we go, oh, the enemy said this, the devil said this, like, like as if it was Jesus standing in front of the devil and then the devil with all his, you know, ugliness and, 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 and uh, evilness says, Jesus, do this. No. You know why? Because the devil tempts. He doesn't just tell you do it. He tempts. He makes it alluring. He makes it acceptable. He makes it gray area. And he says, Jesus, you're hungry, right? You have power to make stones, turn stones into bread. Jesus, you want the world to recognize you as king, right? Very easy. Jump off the temple. Jesus, you want the world, you want to win over the world to you, right? Easy, bow down and worship me. I will give you the world. He does the same to us. You've got objectives, you've got goals, you've got ambitions, you've got needs that you need to get met. And you know the righteousness of God requires you to live out lives that are righteous before God. But the devil comes and tempts and allures and entices because he pokes that part of you that needs it. Like, I feel I need this. I feel I need that. That is why Jesus says, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. When I used to love Jesus and I'm passionate for Jesus and, and then I get tempted and I fall for it, then my first love lost. The love of many will grow cold. And it's not a situation that you don't know is sinful. Huh? You do. You know, it's like eating that extra rich piece of cake. It's so rich, it's sinful. And there's this battle inside of you. Eat or don't eat. Eat or don't eat. But I like it. Eat or don't eat. But I, I can, you know, run a bit more afterwards, lah, exercise a bit more, you know. But it's so nice, you know. 
eat or don't eat. By the way, 25th anniversary. <laughs> there will be lots of cakes. All right, we want to thank the members of SIBKL um, who, who are making cakes and committing themselves to making some awesome, really, really awesome, really rich, really powerful. <laughs> Let me just tell you, the cakes are all sanctified, eh? All right, you don't have to eat it and go, oh, sin. All right, it's not, all right? But, uh, but you, get, you get where I'm going with this, right? There are times when these temptations come and, and you know it's not right, but, but because it's now fallen into the gray area, you're, you're battling it. You're battling it out. The warning Jesus gives is real. It says, he who endures to the end. That means when, when someone throws it into the gray area, you say, no, the righteousness of God requires me to treat it and to treat the righteousness of God as, the most, as my utmost priority so that iniquity will not abound in my life, so that lawlessness will not abound in my life. And Jesus assures us of that because he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and guess what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the kind of people I am coming back for. People who would stand for righteousness. People who would live out their lives pursuing righteousness above the cost. What kind of people will Jesus come back for? People who stand for righteousness. But I want to finish off this point with this aspect. We know that people who pursue righteousness cannot pursue it of our own doing. It is not within our own strength. And that is why Jesus comes and because of his sacrifice, because of the grace and the love of God, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his righteousness and says, you are made righteous, now live righteously. So my question to you is this, who is your righteousness? Your own doing or Jesus imputing, giving you his righteousness so that we can stand for righteousness. Lastly, this is the one that excites me the most. This is a kingdom that advances the gospel. A kingdom that advances the gospel. Because Jesus tells us, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You know why I love this the most? Because the kingdom of heaven on earth is not just defending itself from attacks, from wars, famine, persecution, hatred, trials, and tribulations. No, it's a kingdom that is also on the offensive. It is also advancing and expanding. It is not merely on the defensive because God said, Jesus said, I will build my church. Build doesn't mean uh, that I set the boundary and okay, that's it, everybody, you're good. No, I will build my church. I will expand my influence. I will build it up. I will make it glorious. I will make it great. This is going to be something the world will recognize as my church. I will build my church, and guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So no matter what the enemy tries to do, no matter what the enemy tries to do to tear it apart, to tear it down, I will build my church and it will be firm. So there are two realities about this. Number one, the enemy obviously doesn't want the gospel of the kingdom to spread because you want to tear down the church. 
The enemy obviously doesn't want a church to grow. Just as I was preparing yesterday, I was looking through this and I was actually, I was literally typing, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I get a message uh, um, of, of more news that governments are enacting laws to spread, to, to curb the spread of the gospel. And these are in countries or locations that you think, actually, the church is going strong in this place. It will, it will expand, it will expand smoothly and then pop, this law comes in. It was almost like an immediate test of my faith. You sure that, you know, Jesus will build his church? I believe so. Because there's reality number two. Reality number two says, no matter what the enemy does, the church is advancing. No matter what the enemy does, the gospel is going out. The kingdom is expanding. Because all over the world, more and more people are declaring their faith in Jesus Christ. More and more people are coming to know Jesus and declaring him as their Lord and Savior. And it doesn't matter whether you're in a nation where persecution is great or in a nation where there is no persecution because God moves hearts and minds towards him. God moves hearts and minds towards him. Testimonies abound of what God is doing in the lives of so many people around the world and how they've drawn, how he has drawn these people to him. But there's something very important about this point. God doesn't simply make believers in the snap of a finger or the blink of an eye. I believe. No. Because Romans 10, verse 13 to 15 tells us, Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Here's the thing. When Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations, he said, that's where you come in. That's where you're involved. That's where you come in. Go on the advance with me. Fulfill the great commission. Make disciples of all nations because as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. This is your primary mission on earth. We're not a kingdom that has already been fully completed, fully established and just waiting for Jesus to come back. No. We're a kingdom that is continually expanding in influence, in authority, in power, in number, and in strength but we all have a role to play. The word nations here is referred to in the Greek as the word ethne, which refers to people groups or ethnicities. That means people defined by their race or their language, culture, and, and even their dialect. Because while the gospel may have penetrated every country, every political country in our world today, it still has room to penetrate every nation of this earth every tribe and every language and every tongue in this, nation, in, in, this, in this world, even in our nation. We want to see churches arise. We want to see followers of Jesus rise from every nation because the gospel was for that nation. The gospel was for every nation on earth. Jesus is saying, this is where you come in. This is where each one of us comes in. This is where the people of the kingdom play their role. Because friends, if it wasn't for three missionaries who committed their lives to go to, go to the jungles of Borneo 
in the early 1900s, we would not be where we are today. This nation would not have been reached, the ones in Borneo and then the people that we see today. SIBKL's roots go deeper than just the jungles of Borneo. It goes into the hearts of the men who committed their lives to advance the gospel. And if this is the first time you're hearing me say this, come next week. More stories to come on the birth of this church and, and what God has done in sending his people to advance the gospel into Sarawak, into Sabah, and then people who have then committed their lives to carry this baton of the gospel to the world around us today. That is why we are now involved in Sabah and Sarawak. That is why we pray and support our missionaries all over the world. And that is why each and every one of us are placed in our workplaces where we work with people of different races, different religions, different backgrounds, because we advance the gospel in our locations. We advance the gospel in as many ways possible that we can pray, send people, go. We advance the gospel. You see, when Paul said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, he wasn't going to sit around and wait for the kingdom to come. He was going to make the kingdom come. He was going to say, I'm going to advance the gospel because once the gospel is preached as a testimony to all nations, Jesus will come back. The king will come. So the question to all of us is this. Whose kingdom will you expand? Whose kingdom will you expand? You may look at all these questions. Who transforms you? Who is your anchor? Whose righteousness? Who, will be, who is your righteousness? Who do you value the most? And whose kingdom will you expand? And you may think this is all rhetorical. Of course it's Jesus. Textbook answer. But here's the thing. It's the truth. And I don't want to people... And I don't want to see a people, and I'm sure Jesus doesn't want to see a people who just know this in their heads, but who begin to live it out in their lives. Because we can all say it's Jesus, but let it become so deeply entrenched in our hearts. Jesus is king. Some of you are going, Kanye West. Because if we don't live out the kingship of Jesus Christ today, when he comes back, we'd only be foreigners when he comes back for his kingdom and we're not the people who live out the kingdom of heaven, they live out the cultures and, and the kind of characteristics of the kingdom of heaven, we'd be foreigners. And you know what happens to foreigners when Jesus comes back. When Jesus returns for his kingdom, I want to be part of that kingdom. And so what does Jesus look for when he comes back? He looks for people who are transformed by the truth. He looks for people who are anchored in Jesus. He looks for people who value Jesus above all else. He looks for people who stand for righteousness. And he looks for people who will advance the gospel and go where the gospel has never gone before because we're building the kingdom together. Let me end with this. I started off with Matthew 23 and a quote that Jesus makes and he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes 
in the name of the Lord. It is a phrase taken from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is, is one of the most often quoted Psalms in the Bible. And, and it declares that a king will come to save Israel. And Israel of the New Testament, and Israel of our day, is the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 118 declares that a king will come and establish his kingdom, and righteousness will be the standard of that kingdom. Jesus is referred to in that psalm as the cornerstone. So essentially, this king is Jesus, and he is coming back. The question is, when he comes, will we be the ones who say, Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who has now come. Let us rise. Let us rise. Jesus is a king. Jesus is king. And he's a king who is coming back to receive his kingdom. The coming king is coming to receive his kingdom. What that means though is this. The coming king is coming back for a kingdom, for a people that is prepared for his coming. He came the first time to inaugurate, the people were not prepared. And so he begins, he begins the groundwork. He begins with his disciples, he begins with the apostles, he begins with the early church. And we are the church today. When he comes back, would we be prepared to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, O Lord. And I pray that I would be one of those who when Jesus comes again, not just will it be awesome, but I will be able to lift up my eyes to Jesus and go, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I wish the same, and I pray the same for all of us, that we would be able to lift our eyes to Jesus and go, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even as we worship, we're going to just worship God with a song and just lift up our eyes to Jesus. Can I just encourage you to begin to worship God together? As we worship God, just look to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, you are king over my life. You know, if Jesus is not king of our lives today, it's going to be very hard for us to say, you're king when he comes back. Because we'd be foreigners. We don't know what this culture of the kingdom looks like. But if we live out our lives with Jesus as king in our lives today, we make that commitment before God and we say, Lord, we want you to be king of our lives. I want you to be king of my life. When he comes, it will be so natural for you. It will be, here comes the king. Hallelujah. So come, let's just worship God together. Let's just commit ourselves to Jesus Christ. Creation. Unfold your sovereign plan. Unfold your sovereign plan. Yes, Lord. Raise up a chosen generation That will march that through this will land march through the land All of creation is longing For your unfailing love Would you release your Let it 
value you above all, that stand for righteousness, and people who commit our lives to advancing the gospel of the kingdom to all nations. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, that our hearts and our lives will be transformed by your word, that it would move us, that it would cut deep in our hearts and enable us to pursue you wholeheartedly to pursue your kingdom and your righteousness, to say above all else, Jesus is King. And so God, we commit our lives to you this week. May it be an awesome and powerful week. And as we come back next week to celebrate your goodness, to celebrate what you have done in this church, what you have done in building your kingdom through us, Lord, we wanna give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you so much for coming.